You're listening to audio from Citizens Church in Annapolis, Maryland. I'm Pastor Joey, and I hope what you're about to hear blesses you, increases your love and knowledge of Jesus, and answers any questions that you might have about him. Thank you, Chris. And uh, good morning, everybody. So good to be together, to look through God's Word together. So go ahead and do that. Open up your Bibles with me. Turn to Psalm 110. Today is our last sermon in a short series we've been going through entitled Songs of the Messiah, where we are examining the book of Psalms and looking for Jesus, looking for the future Messiah. And this psalm, maybe more than any other psalm, is messianic. It's just dense and loaded with all these undertones, all these anticipations for the future Messiah. And so this psalm, if you were listening when Chris was reading, is heavy, heavy, heavy on God's justice. God's justice. And look, I, by nature, am a very non-confrontational person. And so God's justice, his wrath, things like that have always been very uncomfortable for me. But the more and more that I studied and examined and understood God's justice, his wrath, the more I understood how exceptional, how unique it is, how there is no justice at all, not even nearly close to God's justice. So my hope today, as we examine this, this uh, psalm together, is to see how unique and incredible and attractive, consistent, comprehensive, and rich and profound God's justice is. So that's the question I want to ask today is, what is unique about God's justice? What's so exceptional about God's justice? And I hope we go through three points together to help us understand. First, we're going to see that it's patient. We're going to see that it is gracious, and we're going to see that it is fair. God's justice is patient, gracious, and fair. And so before we jump in together, let's bow our heads and pray and ask God to be with us. Father, we come to you now and we ask that you would help us to understand your word and help us to see the richness and the genius and the beauty of your justice. Father, we thank you that for those of us who are in Christ, just as baptism represents, your um, wrath has been poured out on Christ instead of us, (laughs) that we um, have been forgiven because your anger towards us is completely removed. As far as the east is from the west, so our sins have been removed from us. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so is the steadfast love of the Lord towards those who fear him. And so, Father, we um, worship you and uh, appreciate you today for your rich and amazing justice. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, so why is God's justice unique? What's so, what's so rich about God's justice? Let's go ahead and take a look. First, we're going to see it's patient. Look at verse 1. David writes, The Lord, L-O-R-D in all caps, the Lord, Yahweh, that's God, says to my Lord. The Lord says to my Lord. That's David's Lord. So it's like David here is, you know, describing this hypothetical conversation or interaction happening between God and David's Lord. So the question is, who is David's Lord? Who who would David be referring to here? And you remember in 2 Samuel chapter 7, 2 Samuel 7, David is given a promise that one of his future descendants will sit on his throne and establish a kingdom that will last forever, and that king will enjoy a father-son relationship with God. That is the second Lord here. Who is the my Lord that David is talking about here? It's his future descendant. 
It's the future Messiah. It's the future king who's going to establish a kingdom that will never, ever end. That's who this, these two people are, these two parties are. It's Yahweh and the future Messiah. And what God tells this future king is what? To sit down at his right hand until an appointed day. Until the enemy, his enemies are made his footstool. What this means is that there will be a day when God, through Jesus, visits every injustice and overcomes every shred of opposition. But until then, Jesus is sitting down. Now, the language of sitting down or the imagery of Jesus sitting down is meant to convey something very important to us. What it means is that there is no more work to do. The work has been accomplished. If you look at Hebrews 1.3, for instance, it says this. I'll read it to you. It says, after making purification for our sins, Jesus sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. What this means is the penalty, the penalty for sin has been removed. The penalty for sin has been paid. That work of redemption, that work of reconciliation has been accomplished. There is no more work to do. We don't have to perform. We don't have to earn. We don't have to... There's nothing that we can do anymore. Jesus has finished that work. The penalty of sin has been paid. And because Jesus has already initiated the salvation and filled us with his spirit, this also means that the power of sin is already beginning to be disarmed. It's already beginning to weaken in our life, and that will happen continuously and increasingly throughout our life. But there will be a day where the very presence of sin is completely eliminated. He's already dealt with the penalty. The power of sin is already being broken. One day, the very presence of sin will be completely obliterated on the day that Jesus returns. On the day when Jesus gets up off his throne, ceases to sit down, and comes and ultimately brings us into our full salvation that he has earned for us. But until that day, he is sitting down. And so what this means, what this means is that there's opportunity that, that the expiration date, it's sometime in the future, we don't know, but until that day comes, there's open enrollment. There's open enrollment. He is patient. What's unique about God's justice? It's long-suffering. It's patient. He is waiting and waiting, opening his heart to us. Jesus is sitting down, and he's made himself available. God's justice is patient. It's open enrollment. Here's another thing that we should recognize, though. What it means, because, because God's justice is patient, it means this. He's not in a hurry. You know, we, we observe the calamities and the injustices and the heartbreaking things and the things that make us grieve, and rightfully so. We examine these things in our life, in our circles, around the world, and they're heavy. We think to ourselves, why, God, why will you not act? How long, O oh Lord, will you make this? How long will you allow this to happen? Okay, how long? And we get so worked up. We get so, we, we, get to, we tend to despair. We, we get frenzied and hurried. God's not frenzied. He's not frantic. He's, he's not hurried at all whatsoever because he knows something we don't know. He knows that there will be a day where that long suffering ends, that patience ends, and he comes back and, and makes everything right and visits every single injustice, but until then, he is sitting and he is waiting. So when you integrate these things together, here's why this is so incredible for us. If you believe that God's justice is patient, 
if you believe that, and therefore you believe that it's available right now, like there's still opportunity, and you believe that God's not in a hurry, but it's imminent, it's coming, Here, here's when these, when these things are integrated together. Here, here's, what, uh, here's what these things instruct us. Here's why they matter. We should be urgent in our evangelism because it's imminent, but we should not be anxious because God's not anxious. We should be passionate about justice. Oh, yes, we should be passionate about justice, but we should not be overcome by cynicism or anger or despair. We should not be because God's not. We should be active in good works, absolutely, but we should not be discouraged that we cannot champion every single cause and solve every single problem. It's just not possible. That's God's responsibility, not our responsibility. We should be grieved about the pain, about the brokenness, that we see. We should still trust in God's goodness. We should still trust in his wisdom. We should still trust in his timing because he knows what we do not know. God's justice is patient, and that should conceive within us radical urgency, radical passion, care, thoughtfulness, but also a radical peace, a a radical, we're not in a hurry. We're not frenzy. We're not frantic. We're not overcome. Contentment trust. That's what it should build into us. So what makes God's patience so hard for us to accept is that our impulse, our impulse, anyone here, you're going to fall into two categories. Either you're going to want everything solved right here, right now. You don't want to wait. You want it dealt with here right in a moment. Or like me, like I said earlier, your, comfort, your, your impulse is towards non-confrontation. You want to put off that confrontation. You want to put off solving that, that dilemma, solving that issue. God does not fall into either one of those things. Because his justice is patience. It's not exacted immediately, but it won't be put off forever. So God has not forgotten the oppressed. He has not forgotten anybody. He has not ignored acts of injustice. His timing is different. He knows what we don't know. So God's justice, it's patient. Because Jesus is sitting down. One day he'll get up, but for now he's sitting down. And because of this truth that God is patient, it, it ushers us into the next point, which is this. That God's justice is gracious, incredibly gracious. Look at verses 2 and 3. It says, The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments from the womb of the morning. The dew of your youth will be yours. Now remember, in verse 1, just before this, David is observing this hypothetical interaction between God and the future king. And now what he's doing here in these next few verses is he's describing what's happening in the meantime. Okay? God swears this oath, makes this pledge to the future king that one day all justice will be eliminated completely. But what's happening then in the meantime? Here's what's happening. He's describing the installment of the future Messiah on the throne. This is Jesus' death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. Jesus is king. He's already initiated his kingdom. That's what it means when he says, The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. And then David, based on this reality, makes this declaration, Rule in the midst of your enemies, Jesus. Rule in the midst of your enemies, this future king. And then he observes what happens during this ruling, during this uh, that's kingdom that's been established. He says people are drawn to the king. They offer themselves freely to the king. That's what it means when it says your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your, of your power in holy garments. But here's the question, why? Why do these people offer themselves freely to this king? What, what's, what about this king is causing this to happen? And it says 
that he brings life and refreshment. He brings renewal. That's what this language of womb of the morning and the dew of your youth that he's talking about in verse 3 mean. What it's saying is just as the morning is pregnant with life because of the dew on the ground, so this king's rule is pictured as a new morning that brings life. That's what's happening in the meantime. Jesus has established his kingdom, and people are being compelled and drawn into that kingdom because this kingdom is the kingdom of life. This kingdom is the kingdom of light. This kingdom is the kingdom of renewal. But I want us to notice something that is strange as well. We should take note of this, and this is really, really important. The kingdom of light exists amidst a kingdom of darkness. The people are being drawn to the kingdom, but what's happening outside the kingdom? The nations are raging. The people are opposing. God's people coexist with God's enemies. God's king rules while his enemies rage. There's a kingdom of those who freely offer themselves, and there's a kingdom of those who plot against the Lord's anointed, and God is patiently enduring this tension. That's a good word to use this, that, to describe what's happening. There's this tension right now where Jesus has already initiated his kingdom. He has not yet brought it to its full completion, but all the while we coexist. The light coexists with the darkness. God's people coexist with his enemies. There's this tension in the meantime. And here's what we should conclude then based on this tension, based on this coexistence. This means, listen here, don't listen to this, don't, don't, don't miss this. His enemies can defect from the losing side to the winning side still. His enemies, those who are raging against him and opposing him and scheming against him and want nothing to do with him, his enemies, the king's enemies, can still become his people. His enemies can still become his friends. Do you know how, how we know that? Why we know that? Because every single one of those people who offer themselves freely to the king before that, were his enemies. <laughs> Everyone who is God's friends originally were God's enemies. And this is why God's justice is so unique, because it is characterized by this incredible grace. Friends, <laughs> enemies becoming friends. We call that grace. <laughs> We call that kindness. We call that mercy. God's justice is unique because it is drenched in grace. Listen, this king, he's not so proud. He's not so petty that he will refuse you. Right now, his gates are open. One day they will be closed, but right now, for now, he extends his hand of friendship to his enemies. And listen, just to intensify this, just to make this so much more beautiful to us, it would be right, it would be fair, it would be without question that God leaves us in the darkness because that's what we've chosen over him. It would be fair and right for God to leave us to our devices. But instead, he's offering you an olive branch. Instead, he's offering you his hand of friendship. This is a gift. This is grace. I want to read to you this incredible passage from Isaiah 55 that describes just how incredible God's grace is. It says this, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Who forgives their enemies? 
Who, 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 who does that? No, none of us. <laughs> and that's why God is so different. Look what, it, look what it continues to say in Isaiah. He says, God says this about himself. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. The Lord. For, as high, for as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. That, those last two lines that I've read, we take those lines out of context a lot and refer to like how God knows things that we don't know. And that certainly is true. But these verses are talking about God's radical forgiveness. <laughs> about God forgives people that we would never forgive, that we would never show grace to. God's grace is literally just out of this world. That's what this is saying. So if you're here, okay, and you don't know Jesus, you're, you know, you're investigating the claims of Christianity, you're curious, you're on the outside looking in, you're skeptical, listen, will you defect from the losing side to the winning side? Will you defect from the darkness to the light? God's offering his hand of friendship right here today. Today, if you hear his voice summoning you, do not harden your heart. Today, if you hear his voice, come, come, come to him. Because he wants to be your friend. Now, there's a problem, though. With all this I've just said, it's so grandiose and spectacular, but there is one big problem we have to solve, which is this. A king, if he is good, and especially if he is just, can't just turn a blind eye to his enemy's transgressions. A king, if he is to remain good, remain holy and worthy and for sure just, a king cannot just pretend like all the injustices that his enemies have committed haven't happened. That, that doesn't work, otherwise the king is no longer worthy. The king is not that glorious. The king is not just. The king is not holy. The king is not worthy of our worship. The king has compromised. What kind of king is that? So we have a problem here. How can this king make his enemies his friend? It's not, it's not arbitrary. It's not just like, oh yeah, let's, we're going to do that arbitrarily. No, there has to be like a specific transaction that takes place for him to remain just, yet for his enemies to be his friend. So how is that going to happen? If, that, if there's no transaction like that, we have a problem. This king is no longer a worthy king. And that's where verse 4 is really important. Look at verse 4. It says, The Lord has sworn. Okay, here's another conversation happening between God and the future Messiah. Yahweh has sworn and will not change his mind. You, future Messiah, King Jesus, are what? A priest. A priest after the order of Melchizedek. Now look, this is an extremely dense verse. Go to Hebrews 7 on your own time later if you really want to dig into like all the richness that is in this verse. But basically, here is the point to this incredible, incredible verse. Melchizedek was a priest and a king. You remember back in Genesis when Abraham meets Melchizedek, he's both a priest and a king. And this Melchizedek character is like this foreshadowing to the future Messiah. He prefigures, if you will, Jesus. He sets the stage for Jesus. And Jesus, just like Melchizedek, is both a king and a priest. And that status of being a priest for Jesus, listen, this is really, really important. Um, that status is not on the basis of being a Levite. You remember in the Old Testament, who were the priests in Israel? It was the people of the tribe of Levi. Uh, it's not a st- Jesus' status as a priest, it does not arise out of nowhere. 
doesn't happen because he's a Levite. It doesn't happen because of a birth status. Jesus' status as priest is on the basis, this is all from Hebrews 7, but here's what you got to know. Jesus' status as priest is on the basis of his sinless perfection. It's a status that has always been since he eternally exists without sin. That's why God says to Jesus in this conversation in verse 4, you are a priest. You are a priest, not you will be or you now are, but you are a priest. As in God is just simply declaring and stating what has always been the case, which is Jesus stands eternally as a sinless priest. And unlike the Levites, here's the problem with uh, the Levites, the priests in the Old Testament. Here's the problem. They could become unclean. They had to offer sacrifices for their own sins before they could ever deal with anyone else's sins. They could die and no longer be a priest. They could retire and no longer be a priest. But Jesus' status as priest, it's never, ever, ever at risk. His perfection, his indestructible life, his excellence make it impossible for his status as priest to ever end or ever be compromised. And that's why God says to the future king, I will never change my mind about you. You are priest forever, just like Melchizedek, both priest and king. There's no possibility of Jesus' priestly status to ever be lost. Now, why does this matter? Because of what a priest does. What's the, what's the job of a priest? A priest is supposed to stand in and represent the people to God. He's supposed to mediate forgiveness from God to the people. He is supposed to make atonement for their sin so they can be in right relationship with God. That is the job of the priest, to make atonement, represent, and mediate, to bring about reconciliation. That is the job of a priest. And so here is Jesus, who is priest forever, and that will never change or never be compromised, which means... He stands as our representative forever. He stands as our mediator forever. He is always conferring to us God's forgiveness. That will never, ever change. And what makes it even better is this. The priests in the Old Testament, they made atonement for sin by what? The blood of bulls and goats. It was just a superficial covering. It didn't deeply cleanse, deeply take care of the issue. But what blood does Jesus use to make atonement? His own divine, perfect, immortal blood. Our infinite sin debt has been paid by infinitely costly blood. That's why we never need another sacrifice again. No more priests on our behalf again. We have a priest who stands as our innocence, pleading our case forever and ever and ever. So here's the question. How can this king make his enemies his friend? It's because he's also a priest. See, the king gives his own life for his enemies. The king takes off his robes, takes off his ring, takes off his crown, and puts it on his enemies. The king takes his very righteousness and his very glory and his very blamelessness and gives it to his enemies so they are fit for his kingdom, so they rightfully belong and will never, ever change. That's what the king has done. See, it's so unique. God's great justice is so unique as, yes, he is king, so he has all authority. Yes, he is king, so he holds the line. He will never, ever compromise, nor should he, or he's not worthy. But on the other hand, he's a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. He stands as our innocence forever and ever and ever. So listen, you can turn to Jesus as your king because he's also your priest which means you can move from enemy to friend. I want to read for you 
a few different scriptures here, just a theology of all this and how rich it is. Look at this, Ephesians 2, 1 through 5. Talking about moving from enemies to friends. It says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that has now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Do you see how deep we were, lost we were in the darkness? Do you see how strongly by nature we just opposed God and wanted nothing to do with Him? But then it says, but God. There's the best two, the best two words in the whole entire Bible. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. It is because of God's grace that we go from enemies to friend. You can move from darkness to light. Move from darkness to light. Colossians 1, 13-14. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. You don't need to live in the outskirts. <laughs> you don't need to live in the darkness. You can be brought into the empire of Jesus, brought into the kingdom of light. And here's what's required of you. Here's what you got to do to get in. You ready? Nothing. It's given freely. Romans 3, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a what? As a gift, unilaterally, through the redemption that is in Jesus. Later in 6, it says, the wages of sin is death, but what? The gift of God is eternal life. The free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. You don't get in on your performance. You don't get in on your allegiance. You get in on Jesus your priest king who stands at the right hand of the Father, and all the Father has to do is consult him, look to his right to see just how righteous you are because his righteousness is your righteousness. So turn from the darkness to the light. Turn from being an enemy to a friend. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. The hand of Christ is extended to you. God's justice, it is patient, it is gracious, and lastly, what we're going to see is it's fair. It's, it's fair. This is where we conclude. This is like the only reasonable place to conclude. So with talking about how the positives of God's justice, how rich it is, how incredible it is, how unlike anything else it is, now we're going to talk about the only reasonable place to conclude, which is it is fair. So as we read in verses 5 through 7, I want you to notice something. All before this, Everything was in the present tense, meaning it's happening right now. But now what we're going to read is what's going to happen ahead of us. Here's what's going to happen in the future. The emphasis shifts from the present to the future. And again, David declares what the future Messiah will do based upon what he has just sworn to him, what God has just sworn to him. Look at verse 5. It says, the Lord, okay, that's God in the Hebrew. The, the, uh, the language implies that's Yahweh here. Okay, so Yahweh, God, is at your right hand, the king's right hand. He will, here's what this king is going to do. This is cringy, this is uncomfortable for us, but here's what's going to happen one day. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook, by the way, but therefore he will lift up his head. We have language in here like shattering, wrath, judgment, corpses. 
Now, this is poetic imagery. This is hyperbolic. I don't think Jesus is literally going to come and just slay everyone. I don't think that's what, what, what uh, is going to happen. But certainly, what this means is God's judgment is severe. It is final. It's inevitable. And it's going to be universal. So Jesus one day will return, and with all the power of his divinity, he will exercise just judgment. Now listen, like me, okay, this, this language is graphic. It's severe, it's heavy, and it makes me uncomfortable. It makes us uncomfortable, but, but like I said at the beginning, the more we study God's justice, the more it seems fair, the more it seems reasonable. So what I want to do now is give you four reasons why this is fair. Four reasons why this is acceptable and reasonable, okay? So we're going to do that. First reason why this is fair. God's wrath is fair, one, because it's on our terms. God's wrath is on our terms. Romans 1, I think, gives the most fundamental, most basic, clear-cut, straightforward understanding of what we mean by God's wrath. What is God's wrath? It says in Romans 1, uh, chapter 1, verse 17, that God's wrath has been re- revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. And later on at the end of the chapter in Romans 1, here's what God's wrath uh, looks like. like. What are the evidences of it today? How does it uh, work itself out in our reality Here's what God's wrath looks like according to Paul in Romans chapter 1. What it means when God pours out his wrath or exercises his wrath is he does this. He gives us up to the lusts of our heart and to our dishonorable passions. He gives us over to our sin. He gives us over to our idols. He gives us over to the worst parts of ourselves that we are giving ourselves over to. So when Jesus, here's what this means. When Jesus returns to bring about God's justice, ultimate justice, he's going to pour out God's wrath, meaning he's going to hand all of those who oppose him over to their desires for all of eternity. He's going to hand all of those who oppose him over to their desires for all of eternity. And I think, friends, that's what hell is. Hell is the eternal experience of a lifelong choice of separation and independence from God. Essentially, for all who, who want alienation from God, independence from God, separation from God so they can have these things over here and make these things the center of their life, the Lord of their life, the God of their life. Here's what God is going to say. Very well. I will grant you, grant you your wish. I will give you what you want, independence, alienation, separation from me for the rest of your life, for the rest of eternity. And so what they have sought after their entire life will be granted to them for all of eternity. Eternity, another way to say it, is going to be the realization of a lifetime trajectory. Everyone in the world, everyone who's alive, is either becoming more like the person they will be forever in heaven or becoming more like the person they will be forever in hell. Our eternal destination is the punctuation or realization of who we are becoming our whole entire lives. C.S. Lewis says it this way, There are only two kinds of people in the end, those who say to God, Thy will be done, or those to whom God says, thy will be done. Where God hands us over to our desires for eternity. And I think Luke 16, Luke 16 captures this. Jesus gives us this parable in Luke 16 of, of a rich man and a guy named Lazarus. Okay, And names are really, really important. In the parable, notice, one's given a name and one is not. One's just given a description. Here's just the rich man and here is a poor man named Lazarus, and Lazarus means God is my help. And what happens in the, st- in the story and in the parable is these two men die and they go into the afterlife. And Lazarus enjoys the presence of God, is 
and the nearness of God and eternity and at rest. But the rich man continues to be called the rich man even in hell. The rich man, the arrogance in his life, the self-reliance in his life, it is intensified and it's accelerated. It's all-consuming in the story. He remains the same person he was on earth forever, but doesn't break, but doesn't repent, but doesn't want it to be any other way. Essentially, what's happening, what Jesus is showing us there in Luke chapter 16, that when we reach our eternal destination, we will be who we truly are, who we truly have been all along. And so listen, I know God's wrath and his justice and these things, like they're loaded and they're, they're polarizing, but God's wrath, when he dispenses it one day, it's going to be on our terms. He's going to give us the things that we've wanted our entire life, either him or alienation from him. It will be either heavenly or it will be hellish. So that's the one reason God's wrath is fair, because it's on our terms. But also, God's wrath is fair because he is love. And that might be interesting to some of you, like polar opposites to some of you. But listen, a God who is all loving must also be all justice. Otherwise, he's not all loving. Here's what one theologian says. I've read this before. I pull it out every now and again. It's really important, though. This helps us understand why God who is love must also be a God who is all justice or all wrath. Here's what this theologian says. Listen, he says, I used to think that wrath was unworthy of God. Isn't God love after all? Shouldn't divine love be beyond wrath? God is love and God loves every person and every creature. That's exactly why God is wrathful against some of them. My last resistance to the idea of God's wrath was a casualty of the war in the former Yugoslavia, the region from which I come. According to some estimates, 200,000 people were killed and over 3 million were displaced. My villages and cities were destroyed. My people shelled in and de- shell day in and day out, some of them brutalized beyond imagination. And I cannot imagine God not being angry. Or think of Rwanda in the last decade of the past century where 800,000 people were hacked to death in 100 days. How did God react to the carnage? By doting on the perpetrators in a grandparently fashion? By refusing to condemn the bloodbath, but instead affirming the perpetuator's basic goodness? He says, wasn't God fiercely angry with them? Though I used to complain about the indecency of the idea of God's wrath, I came to think that I would have to rebel against a God who wasn't wrathful at the sight of the world's evil. God isn't wrathful in spite of being love. God is wrathful because God is love. You see? If God didn't love us, he would not be moved to fierce anger. If God did not love his creation and his creatures, then God would not be moved to do something about it. And one day he will. And so, if you are polarized by the idea of God's justice, his wrath, the anger, these these words, I mean this in the most, um, I'm not trying to criticize or be mean, but I just want to be honest and say this, okay? If you have a problem with God's wrath, what it means is you have been sheltered. You've had a very sheltered life. Because there are monstrosities and great injustices and terrible dark things that happen day in and day out globally. And look, we have cell phones now, and some knowledge is at our fingertips, we have a global connection. So we're getting to beginning to realize just how bad things really are, how bad we really are. But listen, if you want a God who is all loving, you have to also have a God who holds the line who will deal with injustices. Otherwise, how can that God be loving at all? Otherwise, he turns a blind eye. Otherwise, he lets people get away with it. 
So if you want a God who's all loving, you must also have a God who is all justice. That's the second reason why God's wrath is fair. God's wrath, thirdly, is fair because we're all guilty. Now listen, I know I just described these monstrosities and these terrible, awful things that have happened, and you, I know, might think to yourself right now, but I'm not a murderer. I haven't done, the, like, my sins, they're respectable sins. They, you know, they're, 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 they're fine. They're, they're no, no bigger than anyone else's. What's the big deal? Why would I go to hell? Why would anyone like me go to hell? I, yeah, send the murderers to hell, send the tyrants to hell, but, but no, not me. Here's what I would say to that. I would, interestingly, go to Leviticus 19. Let me just explain to you what Leviticus 19 says. It's really interesting. I think it gives us a good argument for this, a helpful, helpful understanding of our guilt. Leviticus 19 is a chapter in the law of God where he tells Israel to be holy as I am holy. He gives all these commandments in, the, in this part of the law. And after every single commandment, he says, do this because I am the Lord your God and I am holy. And I want you to be holy as I am holy. So here's the commandment he gives some of the commandments he gives in Leviticus 19. He commands the people of Israel to leave behind the grain that they're harvesting that falls to the ground so that the sojourner and the poor can have it. He commands the people not to steal, not to lie, not to oppress or rob their neighbor, not to do injustice in court or show partiality or slander or hate or take vengeance or bear a grudge. In summary, he says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So with a principle like that, we can all say to some degree we're guilty, of course. That we have not loved our neighbor as, as ourselves. Have we ever hated? Have we ever lied? Have we ever wanted to take vengeance? Have we ever gotten even? Sure. So we're all to some degree, according to Leviticus 19, we've broken the law, we're guilty. But does that deserve hell, really? Like, I'm not as bad as that person over there. I've just done these respectable things. Here's what's interesting in, in Leviticus 19. It's very strange. After he gives that running list of common transgressions and, and things that you know, are going to happen every single day, God all of a sudden shifts and gives commandments to Israel on how their society should look. This is the part of the law where he says, don't allow different versions of cattle to breed together. Keep them separate. This is the part of the law where he says, don't plant two different seeds in one field. Keep it separate. This is where he says, don't mix uh, different material together in your clothing. Keep them separate. Keep your hair and your beard a certain way. Keep it separate. And you're like, oh, okay. Why does these, you know, kind of weird order, you know, like, why, why, do these, why do these things follow these moral laws that God gives in Leviticus chapter 19? And here's why. Because Israel, where it is on the map, uh, is located between great southern land and great northern land, and the only way to get south and north is to go through Israel. Uh, west of Israel, or sorry, east of Israel it's desert, 40 miles of desert. You're not going through there. So you have to go through Israel. You have to go through where they're living. And so here's what God's doing. He's saying, when people come through your city, when people come through your region, I want them to know that you are different. I want them to see that not only are you morally different, but because you are morally different, because you're holy as I am holy, it literally creates this new order, creates this new system, creates this new way of life where all things are humming, where everything is clean and neat and tidy and pure. You see what God is saying here? He's saying your adherence to the moral law brings about order. It brings about justice. It brings about purity. It brings about wholeness and flourishing on a societal and systemic level. That's what God is saying to the people of Israel, which means our moral compromises, our moral transgressions affect society and its operations and its order at a whole. That's what God is trying to say in Leviticus 19. 
And then later, if you skip on to Romans, Romans chapter 1 again, Romans chapter 1, it has this running list of common sins like being rude and disobeying parents. It has like things like that at the end of Romans chapter 1. And then Romans 1 ends by saying this, we not only do them, but we give approval to those who practice them. The point is this, we, by our immorality or our transgressions or our inability to keep the law, our sinful choices, however you want to say it, however you want to dice it up, our choices directly affect society as a whole and cause a great unraveling, a great breakdown. Our respectable, acceptable sins not only impact us and destroy us, but they directly impact and destroy others. And not only do we do that, but we enable others to do it. We give permission to others to do it. We sign off on their self-destruction, and we sign off on their lifestyle that creates destruction for others and for society. So you see, okay, you might not be a murderer, you might not be condemned for murder, but all you have to do to be guilty is allow hatred in yourself and in others. You don't have to be guilty of adultery, all you have to do is lust in your heart and permit others to do so. You don't have to be guilty of oppression and tyranny. All you have to do is be greedy and stingy and materialistic so others have, don't have what, what they need. Okay? Our choices that you think that we think are just so acceptable and no big deal, it's not taboo or anything, they directly affect others and cause a great societal breakdown. So you see, your guilt, it's not no small thing. We are all wrapped up together, <laughs> together in guilt. That's the Bible's vision for, for justice. It's not about you only, it's about us. It's not about me, it's about we. So God's wrath is fair because we are all guilty. And lastly, okay, God's wrath is fair because Jesus is perfect. Look at verse 7 again. It says, this is kind of a weird verse, He will drink from the brook by the way, therefore he will lift up his head. What in the world does that mean, and why is that stuck here? Why is that put here at the very end of, this, of this, uh, this song? What does this mean? I think what this is, and many commentators say what this is, is this is an allusion back to Psalm chapter 1. Psalm chapter 1 describes this ideal human, the perfect human, and here's what he's going to do. Here, here's what he's going to be like. It says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like, listen here, a tree that is planted by brooks or streams of water that yields its fruit in season, that triumphs, and its leaf does not wither, and all he does he prospers. And later on in verse 6 it says, For the wicked knows, or sorry, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. So here's Jesus in Psalm 110, verse 7, who is like a tree by a stream who's being refreshed and who lifts his head up in triumph and who is by the way, the way of the Lord. All this language that's taken from Psalm chapter 1, here's what David is, is saying here in this verse, that Jesus is that ideal man. He is the perfect human that God wills, that God was looking for. He is that perfect person. And listen, the reason why many of us here, in fact, I would say all of us here, have this simmering frustration as we look out in the world today and the 
efforts of justice and the conversations happening. And the reason why all of these things are so frustrating and why, there's, why we're missing each other and why there's, it's so complex is because no one's perfect. Everyone's a hypocrite. <laughs> Every, it, that, that's what's so frustrating about all of this is that no one has the right to ultimately drop the hammer on anyone else. No one has the right to ultimately exact justice on anyone else because anyone they say you, that says you're guilty of this, they're also guilty of. Our hearts, we can't receive that. We can't accept that because we know that at the end of the day, we're all, we all have double standards. We all are hypocritical. But here is a king and a priest. Here is a man who is perfect who's without any double standards, who's without any hypocrisy or inconsistency. There's only one person, one person who is worthy of bringing justice, of exacting justice. It's the one who keeps the law of God perfectly. It's the one who Psalm chapter 1 describes, and that's who Jesus is. If you were to go to Revelation, the book of Revelation, you'll see this scene that John is caught up in, and and in the scene, this scroll is brought to him with seven seals on it. What it represents is God's justice that's going to be delivered at the end of time, and he is brought the scroll, and the angel says to him, who is worthy to open the scroll? Who is worthy to open the scroll? And John looks around, and no one's there, and he begins to weep because no one's worthy to bring about conclusive justice. People are going to get away with it, you know. He weeps because no one is able to open the scroll. But then the angel says, no, no, look, look, the lion of the tribe of Judah, he can open the scroll. And then John looks and he sees a lamb that was slain. Jesus is the lion and Jesus is the lamb. Jesus is the king and Jesus is the priest. Jesus is the one who can bring about ultimate justice and it's fair. Because he is patient in his justice. He is gracious in his justice. And it's on our terms. It's because he is loving. It's because he is without any sort of blemish, any sort of hypocrisy. Friends, I hope you see that the Christian understanding and presentation of justice is it's consistent, it's reasonable, it's beautiful, it's fair, it's attractive. I remember talking to a guy who who's walking with Jesus for some time, and I asked him, "Why are you, you know, so? Why are you following Jesus? What what was the ultimate decisive move for you? Why you converted to Christianity?" He says, "Because I couldn't find justice anywhere else but here. This is the only teaching, only worldview that gives us a comprehensive and rich vision of justice." So, if you're here and you're a Christian, which is most of you, what does this have to do with you? Oh man, let God's justice anchor you. Don't freak out. Don't freak out. Don't be despair. Don't, don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Have hope. God, God in his timing and in his way and in his wisdom is going to deal with things according to his will. And we don't need to solve everything. We can't solve everything. So we just need to trust him. Don't freak out. But secondly, also, if you're a Christian, oh, I hope this moves you to worship. I hope this moves you to awe-inspiring worship because Jesus absorbed God's justice for you so that you could have his righteousness. We don't have anything to fear on that day. We know when Jesus returns, we don't fear the sword. We don't don't fear being delivered over to our devices because Jesus took our devices and our punishment and our penalty and the consequences, that alienation we wanted. Jesus screams out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He experienced alienation so we would never have to. So I hope that God's justice moves you to worship and instills a new hope. And if you're here and you are, again, considering, 
you hear his voice, today if you hear his voice, do not harden, his, do not harden your heart. God's justice, it's fair. <laughs> and it's imminent. But in the meantime, it's patient and it's gracious. And he extends his hand to his enemies. And he extends his hand to you today. And all that he asks for you is to trust that his his death in your place was enough. Was enough to clear you of any justice that's coming. Let's go ahead and pray. Father, we do thank you and give you thanks that you are fair and that you are coming again. And Lord, we long for that day because life is hard. Life is so hard. And grief is real and pain is real. And Lord, we look forward to the day where you will wipe away every single tear from our eyes. And where you will embrace us in your presence. Thank you, Jesus, for being both our king and our priest, for being both worthy and for being merciful. Help us to follow you the rest of our days and look for your justice. In your name, amen. For more information about Citizens Church, please go to citizensannapolis.com.